0: For 60 days and counting, Portland, Oregon has been the site of daily protests against systemic racism, protests that started in the wake of the death of George Floyd. These demonstrations have largely been peaceful, and toward the end of June, they were actually starting to lose momentum and the crowds got smaller. Then, federal law enforcement agents showed up.
1: Federal officers again fired tear gas at the crowd after demonstrators shot off fireworks at the courthouse. You can see a small but persistent crowd remains capping off yet another night in the cycle of violence.
0: This past week, Portland was at the forefront of a national showdown between the federal and local governments, becoming the most aggressive example of the federal government's response to this summer's protests, and at a time when President Trump is deploying more federal troops across the country. Plus the agents in Portland and the tactics they're using are sparking protests in other cities too. So we wanted to start today's show by breaking down how this all started, whether the federal government's tactics are legal and what happens next. Okay, so if you've been on social media recently, chances are you've seen one of the many posts urging you to pay attention to what's happening in Portland. Maybe you've posted about it yourself. Here's why what's happening in Portland has become such a big deal. At the end of June, President Trump signed an executive order telling federal agents to increase security around federal monuments and buildings. This was after protesters vandalized or toppled Confederate monuments and other statues of controversial historical figures in cities across the U.S. In the weeks after he signed the order, agents deployed to cities including Portland, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. The agents in Portland are from a combination of federal agencies, including Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. In Portland, they were supposed to be guarding a downtown federal courthouse that had been vandalized, but instead of quashing the protests, their presence has reignited them. Protesters and agents started clashing outside the courthouse soon after the agents arrived in early July. Black lives the crowd started swelling, with thousands of people taking to the streets in protest against the federal agents. While the protests have generally been peaceful, a smaller group typically ends up clashing with the agents later at night. Protesters will throw fireworks, and federal officials claim some are shining lasers into the gated area the agents are protecting around the courthouse. Agents respond with tear gas and other tactics. Overall, more than 60 people have been arrested or detained for federal crimes, including assaulting federal officers. But there were also some things happening in Portland that really struck people as especially concerning. A few weeks ago, a video showed an agent shooting a protester in the head with what's called an impact munition. He was taken to the hospital in critical condition and is still recovering. And listen to this report from CBS News last week. In recent days, agents have taken several people away in unmarked vehicles, allegedly without legal cause. So not only are these agents using tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse crowds in Portland, but there have been reports like that one of protesters being taken away in unmarked cars.
1: This is an attack on our democracy.
0: That was Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who's been calling for the federal agents to leave the city, saying they're making things worse. Here's Wheeler again in an interview with ABC News.
1: Your presence here isn't wanted, it's not needed. It is clearly ratcheting up the violence and the vandalism Local and state law enforcement can handle this, and we need you to leave right now before somebody dies.
0: So it's not just protesters and federal agents who are clashing. Local officials are also intervening essentially on protesters' behalf to try to get the federal agents to leave town. But the acting secretary for the Department of Homeland Security has said, the agents aren't leaving until the violence stops. The question is, Who's in the right here? Generally, the federal government has the authority to protect federal property and to make arrests if it believes that a federal crime has been committed. And while Oregon courts have restricted local police from using crowd-control munitions like in the incident we just mentioned, those restrictions don't apply to federal agents. And as for those reports of protesters being snatched off the street... Well, Department of Homeland Security officials say it's routine to use unmarked vehicles. But policing is typically a local matter. Legal experts also say that it's very unusual for federal agents to operate like this without coordinating or cooperating with local authorities. In fact, Oregon's attorney general sued the federal government a few weeks ago for violating protesters' rights. But a judge has denied a temporary restraining order against the agents, citing a lack of evidence. So local officials have been trying to get these federal agents out of Portland. Meanwhile, the protests have started spreading. Last weekend, solidarity protests took place in other cities like Seattle and Oakland. Thousands of people turned out across the country and demonstrations turned violent. Seattle police said protesters threw rocks and set fires and that at least 21 officers were injured. A protester in Austin, Texas was shot and killed by a motorist. And in Aurora, Colorado, two protesters were shot, and someone drove a car through a crowd of protesters on a highway. Now, Trump is telling Americans to prepare for federal agents in other cities, like Albuquerque and Chicago. This is for a different operation led by the Justice Department, to respond to violent crime. But it means that more Americans outside of Portland should get used to seeing federal agents in town. Mayors are pushing back, Earlier this week, mayors of six cities asked Congress to make it illegal for the feds to deploy agents to cities that don't want them. And in Portland, after weeks of turmoil, it looks like officials there may finally be getting their way. On Wednesday, Oregon's Governor Kate Brown said after weeks of pressuring the Trump administration on this matter, the federal agents are finally starting a phased withdrawal and that state police, rather than federal agents, will take over security outside the courthouse.
1: We live in a democracy, not a dictatorship. We cannot have federal troops roaming city streets across the country or abducting people into unmarked vans. But not
0: everyone is on board. The acting secretary of Homeland Security has reiterated the agents will only leave once they're sure the courthouse in Portland is, quote, safe and secure. So what's the skim? President Trump considers himself a president of law and order.
1: These people are anarchists. These are people that hate our country. And we're not going to let it go forward.
0: But critics say the agents in Portland are violating Americans' constitutional rights. In fact, the inspectors general of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice are now investigating the tactics federal agents have used in Portland. Some say that sending those agents to Portland and other cities is all a political move, that Trump is trying to prop up his struggling reelection campaign with a show of force. Meanwhile, some Black Lives Matter activists say the situation in Portland is distracting from key issues, like the push to defund local police departments. But for now, state and local officials from places where these officers are deployed are focused on making sure that federal agents stay in their lane, Meaning it's fine that they want to protect federal property, but it's not fine to go beyond those boundaries, turning into riot police and undermining peaceful protests. And the federal government doesn't show signs of stopping. The same day Oregon's governor announced that agents were leaving, the Justice Department said it planned to send somewhere around 100 federal officers to Detroit, Cleveland and Milwaukee to help address rising crime rates there. Attorney General William Barr said in a statement that these agents will supplement local law enforcement on efforts that are already underway, like combating drug trafficking and violent gun crimes. Still, the way things played out in Portland has left other cities on edge and worried about whether federal agents in their communities will cross the line. Coming up this week, we got a major breakthrough in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. But that isn't the only thing needed to end the pandemic. We'll explain after the break. You need extra income, and Side Hustle School can help. Now more than ever, you can't rely on a single source of income. But how do you know which ideas are profitable? And where do you find the time? Side Hustle School is for busy people. It's a daily podcast that's just 10 minutes long, chock full of ideas, tips, and stories you can use to finally start that side hustle. It's hosted by Chris Guillebeau, the guy who literally wrote the book on starting a business without spending any money. Subscribe and listen every morning, seven days a week, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week marked a major milestone in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. We
1: want to begin tonight with a huge leap forward in the development of a vaccine against coronavirus. The largest final stage trial now underway. The way that it works is that 30,000 people will be vaccinated in the United States. One of the largest
0: coronavirus vaccine trials started in the United States, thanks to the biotech company Moderna. At 6.45 a.m. on Monday morning, the first participant got their coffee and a shot. Talk about a wake-up call. And over the next few months, 30,000 volunteers from around the United States are going to participate in this final stage, or what's also known as a phase three trial. We spoke to you back in May about how developing a vaccine is kind of like a high-stakes obstacle course. And researchers have told us the pressure is definitely on.
1: What we're seeing today is quite unprecedented. It's not at the level that we've ever seen before. Vaccines are very complex to develop and design, and the risk of failure is pretty high. It's a high stress, high pressure scenario that's happening, but it has to be done.
0: That's because vaccine development usually takes years. We're talking at least a decade. But in response to the global pandemic, governments and research teams around the world have hit the ground running but more like sprinting. Now, Moderna is the first US company to enter phase three of its vaccine development after an earlier phase showed the vaccine was safe and produced an immune response. During Moderna's phase three trial, half the participants will receive two shots almost a month apart, and the other half will unknowingly receive a placebo researchers will be studying patients to see whether or not the vaccine prevents at least 60% of test subjects who receive the vaccine from getting COVID-19. From there, it's just a hop, skip and a jump to get the vaccine approved by regulators like the FDA and to create hundreds of millions of copies for a distribution. Okay, so maybe a lot more than a hop, skip and a jump. So scientists at Moderna are trying to condense a decade-long process into about a year. At the same time, the company has already started manufacturing doses so that if it gets a green light, it'll be ready to distribute millions of vaccines right away. And they're not the only ones. Around the world, according to The New York Times, there are now six vaccines that have made it to the phase three stage. Another major pharma company, Pfizer, also started their phase three trial this week. And all of these vaccines have triggered an immune response to COVID-19 during phase two which experts say is a positive sign that these late-stage trials could be successful. But it will be months before we get results. For now, public health officials are watching the trials very closely. And according to the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, at this pace, we could know if the Moderna vaccine is effective by November of this year. But like we said, it's still an obstacle course. And there are still a lot of unknowns about whether these trials will produce safe and effective vaccines. That's partly because some of the vaccine technology has never been used before. The vaccine the scientists at Moderna are working on uses what's called mRNA. Traditional vaccines inject an inactive or small amount of a virus to prompt the body to develop an immune response. An mRNA vaccine works differently, as it actually tries to get the body to produce the virus and an immune response by itself. And while early studies are optimistic about its use, it's never been used to create an immunization in humans. We should also mention that some of these developers, including Moderna, have never successfully brought a drug to market before. Even if a vaccine successfully hits the market, a lot of people say they wouldn't even get it if it was available. According to a recent Associated Press poll, only 50% of Americans say they would get a COVID-19 vaccine if it was offered. The other 50% said, no thanks, or I'm not sure. According to Dr. Fauci, that's concerning because in order to stop the spread, enough people need to get the vaccine to achieve what's called community immunity, or more commonly, herd immunity. That's when enough people have the vaccine for a certain disease, that the disease spreads between people less frequently and the population is less likely to see outbreaks. So if the vaccine isn't near 100% effective, and not enough people get the vaccine, we probably won't get herd immunity. Some who are skeptical of a vaccine may argue that their chief concern is safety, and the expedited timeline. So far, scientists say people shouldn't be concerned about that. That's because regulatory protections are in place, and they ensure vaccines meet certain benchmarks and are safe. We spoke to Esther Crofa, the Executive Director of Faster Cures at the Milken Institute, about what those final steps look
1: like they will have to go through a regulatory review process. For us here in the United States, it's the FDA. Uh, For those in Europe, it's the EMA, um, the European Medicines Agency, and then there are many, many, many global uh, regulatory agencies as well. They will be looking through this data with a fine tooth comb to assess, as I mentioned, Is it safe uh, for humans? Are we not seeing adverse safety uh, signals in these early studies?
0: And this safety monitoring continues even
1: after a vaccine is approved. They're going to require companies to continue to monitor individuals over the next year and over the next several years to make sure that down the line, we don't see, again, these safety signals that will need us to adjust recommendations with regard to these vaccines. So that effort is happening all over the world.
0: This week marked a major step forward in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Companies like Moderna and the pharma giant Pfizer launched their phase 3 trials, the largest ones to date. But while these trials are historic and on an accelerated timeline, we're still months away from knowing if these vaccines will be effective in preventing illness from COVID-19. But if one of these late-stage trials actually proves to be effective, it means the fastest vaccine ever developed could be available within the next year. There's no question, 2020 has been an unprecedented year. But before we go, we want to talk about a different kind of record that's being set this year.
1: I'm Pat Timmons Goodson, and I'm running for Congress. We're tired of being ignored. My name is Jackie Gordon, and I'm a bit different. And together, we can ensure that Congress works for the people, real people, just like you and me. My name is Desiree Timms, and I am running for Congress. According to the Center
0: for American Women in Politics, at least 129 Black or multiracial Black women filed to run for Congress. That's the highest number since the Center started tracking this data in 2004. And according to the Collective Political Action Committee, nearly 60 of those women are still running for Congress. That includes women who are currently on the ballot for November and women who are running in upcoming congressional primaries. Across the nation in states like North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida, many of these women are longtime community advocates who have also been teachers, nurses, lawyers, or served in the military. And some of these candidates have already made history. Like Pat Timmons Goodson, who became the first African-American woman on North Carolina's Supreme Court in 2006 and is now running for North Carolina's 8th congressional district or Lauren Underwood, who's running for re-election in Illinois. Her win in 2018 marked the first time her district was represented by a woman and by a person of color. And at 32, she was also the youngest Black woman to ever serve in Congress. This week, we spoke to Kimberly Walker, who's in the race for Florida's 12th congressional district, about what led her to run.
1: The obstacles that I continue to go through in my life and because I I have a lot of intersections as a woman African-American, I'm LGBTQ and veteran, which in all these intersections makes me stronger, but it just led me to want to uh, continue to serve my country, but in a different way. Uh, And that's the reason why I'm running for Congress.
0: Walker also talked about how the women in her life had a positive impact on how she takes on challenges.
1: My family has lived in Florida for about 150 years. I grew up poor without many advantages, Um, but my mom and grandmother they instilled in me the principal's hard work getting a good education and you know, just never giving up. And those lessons um, helped me become the person I am today.
0: For candidates like Walker in Florida, there's still a primary ahead. And then for party nominees, up to and including the president, the November election, which is less than 100 days away. To learn more about how to vote on your terms, whether it's by mail or voting early, head on over to theskim.com slash 2020. We have all the resources you need to prepare for election day. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr, Hadley Malcolm, Julia Nutter, and Marian Lozano. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.